Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, February the 27th. I'm a firm believer that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Hear, hear to that. In a moment, we'll discuss a research article considering the feasibility of primary prevention for atrial fibrillation, a chronic cardiovascular condition affecting millions of people worldwide. But just before that, some other content highlights from the issue of The Lancet dated February the 28th to March the 6th. In research, a randomized trial comparing Prasugrel with Clopidogrel for people undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention for ST elevation myocardial infarction. Another randomized trial assessing oral fampridine for the treatment of multiple sclerosis with some encouraging results concerning mobility. And also the meta-analysis comparing new generation antidepressants that was published online a few weeks ago. HIV in Asia gets coverage both in a short editorial and in a World Report item this week. And also look out for this week's correspondence section, which contains a cluster of letters in response to the remarkable research article we published last year about the airway tube transplantation procedure. And in a comment we call for young writers to get out their pens or keyboards to participate in this year's Young Writers Essay Competition. Now, atrial fibrillation is a chronic cardiovascular condition affecting millions of people worldwide and with incidents set to increase as populations become older. Interestingly, little attention has been given to the prevention of atrial fibrillation. So this week's research article about a predictive score to identify those individuals at the highest risk is of interest and could be of practical value in the primary care setting. The study is led by Renata Schnabel from the Johann Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany. And earlier I spoke to her co-author, Amelia Benjamin, who is Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Boston University in the United States and part of the well-known Framingham Research Group. Atrial fibrillation is characterized by having a regularly irregular pulse and by the rhythm in the top chamber of the heart, the atria, being somewhat chaotic. It's the most sustained dysrhythmia and affects about 2 million individuals in the United States. And it's estimated it's a little unclear how many Europeans are affected, but probably on the order of about 4 million. The reason why atrial fibrillation is important is because it's associated with increased morbidity and mortality. It's long been appreciated that atrial fibrillation is a risk factor for stroke and becomes even more important with advancing age. So in people in their 80s, about a quarter of all strokes are occurring in the setting of atrial fibrillation. Increasingly, it's being appreciated that it's also a source of important morbidity, such as an increased risk of heart failure, an increased risk of dementia, etc., And then finally, for a long time, people argued that perhaps atrial fibrillation was just a risk marker, meaning that all the conditions that contributed to atrial fibrillation had bad prognosis and maybe atrial fibrillation in and of itself was not important. But there's been study from Framingham, from colleagues in um, Scotland and Europe that has really demonstrated that atrial fibrillation accounting for all the coexistent risk factors is associated with an increased risk of death. And so the all-cause mortality is increased on the order of um, 50 to 90% with atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is a fairly common disorder and one that increases in prevalence with advancing age. And so, for instance, people in their 50s have only a prevalence of 
less than 1%, but by the time one reaches one's 80s, the overall prevalence is on the order of 10 to 15%, depending upon race and ethnicity. The other reason why it's important is there's data from several studies which has demonstrated that the overall prevalence is increasing, both in the United States and also in Europe. And so it's estimated, at least in the United States, something like 50 million Americans will be affected by the year 2050. It's really increasing in prevalence. And in terms of the current study, can you just explain exactly what it is you're looking to achieve here? The study was designed to actually assess the risk factors and come up with a score so we could better anticipate those people at risk of atrial fibrillation. The motivation was twofold. First, as an epidemiologist and a clinical cardiologist, I'm a firm believer that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so the best way to prevent complications from a disorder is to prevent its occurrence in the first place. There really has not been very much attention placed on the prevention of atrial fibrillation. And in fact, in the last month, Circulation published a workshop put out by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute that looked at how can we improve the research agenda and the understanding of how to prevent atrial fibrillation, both so that clinicians and patients can understand how they can prevent developing the disease, and also so that researchers can understand better how to study it. And in particular, in this era in medicine, there is an explosion of markers and risk factors for many conditions. And so the Lancet, the New England Journal, many journals are publishing week upon week genetic markers for conditions, biomarkers for conditions, etc. Part of our motivation was to try to understand, do those ex- sometimes expensive technologies add to the ability to predict the development of atrial fibrillation over and above the simple risk factors that a clinician can appreciate just having a patient walk in the office and doing a couple of simple tests. Just touch on the methodology because you've used retrospectively individuals who are used in the Framingham study, the data dating back to the late 1960s. Correct. So the Framingham study was initially founded in 1948 to look at the risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And we examine the participants every two to eight years. They come in and they get routine examinations. It's an observational epidemiological study. We do not provide treatment for them. And so they've had electrocardiograms conducted on them for all the routine examinations. Plus, we've retrieved the medical records from their physicians and from their um, hospitalizations. The present study we went back and looked at data that's been accumulating since 1968, and we've gone forward. And so basically, we, we do a technique where we look at people, we characterize the risk factors at the beginning of a 10-year period of follow-up, and then we follow them for 10 years to see if they develop the condition. And we took multiple snapshots of these 10-year windows to try to come up with what the risk factors are. And to do that, we used a statistical technique called Cox regression to 
identify the risk factors. What are the main findings here? Presumably the risk factors that you found are kind of confirming previous studies what, in terms of what we know about the risk factors for atrial fibrillation. Is that right? Most of the risk factors that came out have been established by many publications from both Europe, say the Rotterdam study, um, Dr. Frost's work, people in Canada, people in, in England. So the risk factors largely were already described and, and people from Framingham. Age, sex, body mass index, and uh, an indicator of obesity, systolic blood pressure, treatment for high blood pressure, having a, a clinically significant heart murmur, and heart failure. Those were all known. The PR interval, which is a measurement on the surface electrocardiogram that is basically the duration between the onset of the P wave to the onset of the QRS had been described but was less well understood or less well appreciated as a risk factor for atrial fibrillation. What I think is unique about this is that many of the prior publications had described the relative risk of any one of these factors, the relative risk of obesity, say, had been described by collaborators at the cardiovascular health study, the relative risk for systolic blood pressure by Framingham and other places. What was unique is we put them together to come up with a risk score to estimate an individual's anticipated 10-year risk, and the risk score was really what was unique. The question comes up, how do all these risk factors fit together to predict risk in an individual? And we come up with an estimated 10-year risk of an individual. So some people say 15% risk was recorded in only 1% of participants who are under the age of 65. On the other hand, in people over 65, something like 27% of them had a 15% 10-year risk. And we have two ways of, of calculating the risk. One is that people can um, look at the article and there actually is a point score that people can come up with to estimate their 10-year risk. And that's um, in the article in Tables 3 and Tables 4. We also will have at the website, the Framingham Heart Study website, in the same area where we have all sorts of other risk scores, we will have a 10-year risk of atrial fibrillation that people can download. It's an Excel spreadsheet, and they can look at their risk, and they can also compare it to an individual of the same age and, and sex who doesn't have a lot of risk factors for atrial fibrillation. So it kind of helps one appreciate, am I more at higher risk or about the same risk as my neighbor who, you know, has no risk factors, you know, an ideal body weight, et cetera. Also, Professor Benjamin, can you just talk about the significance of echocardiogram findings and how they influence, if you like, the way this score has been calculated and what the implications are, particularly at primary care level? The primary care physician is basically faced with dozens of new technologies and dozens of new biomarkers, dozens of new risk factors, genetic markers, et cetera. And so one of the questions is, do all these new technologies really advance the ability to predict risk in a clinically significant, important way? What we looked at was we looked at echocardiography to test that. And what we observed is that the echocardiograms, although they, the echocardiographic measurements, although they did, you know, an individual echocardiographic measure did enhance or did show a little bit of um, increased risk, if you account for the clinical factors, it really didn't help one 
improve the reclassification of the risk in the individual. The echocardiograms, probably that for a routine, you know, looking at your average patient, it would not be necessary to do the new technology of the echocardiogram. Really, most primary care physicians can accurately predict risk without using new technologies. What needs to happen next? Because you do point this out, the score that you developed does need validation, doesn't it? Your cohort was generally a white middle-aged population, wasn't it? Correct. And so the, the, the Framingham cohort was middle-aged to elderly. And I would say we do not know the generalizability to people that are much younger than the people that we studied. We studied individuals that were 45 and older. And so it would not necessarily be generalizable to somebody younger than 45 or somebody with a very, very strong family history where everybody in their family gets atrial fibrillation at the age of 25 We didn't study that. We studied common atrial fibrillation occurring in the community. The other thing is that we know that there are racial and ethnic differences in atrial fibrillation, and so we do not know what if it will be translatable into an African-American, say, population because the Framingham participants were virtually all white. The other thing is that all risk scores need to be externally replicated, and so We have collaborators that are in the process of externally replicating and seeing, does our risk score work in other populations? Pending that validation in other populations, is it something practical that primary care physicians can be actually doing now? I think it is. I I think that one can look at it and really get a good sense, you know, whether the exact estimate will be exactly translatable to a white person in England, you know, obviously it would be helpful to have our Scottish colleagues or other people in England really test it out. But I think that you can get a very good sense about whether one's risk is low or high, depending upon the risk score. One of the things that's been true of Framingham risk scores, and we've developed many, you can go to the Framingham website and look at them, is that they tend to be translatable. One has to recalibrate based on the underlying risk factor distribution and the underlying incidence in a given population. For instance, the Framingham risk score for coronary heart disease has been replicated. It has to be recalibrated, but it's actually worked in Chinese populations and African-American populations, etc. It's a very interesting study. Thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Many thanks to Professor Amelia Benjamin for participating in this week's podcast. And do look out for the linked comment by two authors from Sydney and Concord in New South Wales, Australia. Many thanks for listening to this week's podcast. See you next week.